But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors, and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrom Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrom Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrom Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrom.com today. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Reach Podcast. Today's show, I'm chatting to Amy Kirkham, who is a postdoctoral researcher up in Canada, looking at how exercise can attenuate some of the negative side effects of chemo. And a lot of our discussion today focused around that. So we kind of have two different parts of the show. The first part of the show is talking about how, if you're familiar with the podcast or even with treatment in general, chemotherapy is typically given in cycles and how you feel and, and how bad everything is as a result um, goes in cycles too so you know after you get infused you'll have a few days where you feel bad and um, the, the toxins start to slowly remove from your body you start to feel a little bit better get hit with another cycle and that cycle continues so we talk about how to use that cycle of feeling better or worse on certain days during chemotherapy to structure your program or periodize your training program around that to listen to your body to be able to modify exercise as opposed to the alternative, which is not doing anything at all. So we kind of dive into a little bit of that, and then we also look at some really cool stuff that Amy's got going on, uh, talking about how exercise can act as a cardioprotectant. There's a lot of uh, toxicity that occurs with chemo. Some can have a lot of long-term side effects in terms of cardiovascular function, heart function, so on and so forth. So we talk about the mechanisms of that and how aerobic exercise can actually help that. So some really cool stuff. Um, I won't bore you with the details. Let's just jump right into the show, and I hope you enjoy it. This will be a really cool episode because we both share a lot of similar philosophies on how to prescribe exercise during chemo, and that area of research is, is rapidly progressing to the point where we can actually have this discussion. And you've also got some really cool research on cardiotoxicity of treatment. So I think this episode will be really beneficial to both patients and professionals working with them. Uh, but let's start with kind of how you got into this field and, and kind of what got you interested in it. So I did kind of fall into the field by accident. I became interested in wanting to pursue sports medicine, actually, uh, a little bit late in my undergrad. So I decided to do a master's to kind of give me some time to build up my accolades in terms of my med school application. And so... Um, I decided to pursue my master's with 
the director of sports medicine at University of British Columbia, which just happens to be Don McKenzie. And so Don, you may know from starting Abreast in a Boat. So Abreast in a Boat is all breast cancer survivor dragon boating team. And so Don started that in Vancouver in the 90s, and that has now spread all over the world. And there's actually like breast cancer survivor world championships for dragon boating. Um, and so he has been considered one of the early kind of pioneers in the field of cancer and exercise. And so I just happened to decide to do my master's with him based on his work more so in the elite athlete kind of realm in sports medicine. And so I moved out to Vancouver, started doing my master's. And at the time, Don was the Vancouver site principal investigator for the CARE trial. And the CARE trial is, I think it's still the the largest randomized control trial in women with breast cancer uh, receiving chemotherapy, uh, exercise trial of three different arms of different exercise prescriptions. And so I started working on that study as a research assistant in the first year of my master's. And so my interests quickly changed from wanting to work with elite athletes to realizing what an important and interesting research topic this could be. And I just fell in love with the um, both, both sides of it. So particularly one of my main interests is during chemotherapy. And I think that's largely owing to working on the CARE trial. And uh, the two main reasons that it interests me and, you know, I've kind of decided to dedicate my career to it are one that chemotherapy is a really, really difficult treatment for patients to go through. So it's a really vulnerable time in their in their participants' life. And so working on an exercise trial, which is, you know, could be anywhere from 12 to 24 weeks, sometimes even longer, you really get to know these people and be a part of their most vulnerable time period and offer them something that is immediately helpful and can make a difference in their journey. So uh, it was kind of the, the athletic background and you were the kind of, force you a little bit more towards exercise and then as you said kind of seeing the uh the powerful effects of working with these people in terms of uh physical activity during treatment kind of caught you hook line and sinker yeah I, th- I think that's probably pretty common for a lot of people in the field is that we're coming from these athletic backgrounds ourselves so we're naturally drawn towards exercise physiology as a research topic right like that's that's all i knew like i was a varsity athlete and I enjoyed working with other athletes, so that's like a natural inclination when you think about, okay, what am I going to do grad school in? Um, But I'm just so grateful to Don that he provided me with this other opportunity because it's just such a fulfilling research field, Um, and the ability to make a difference in in people's lives is, is much more rewarding and you know, also from the practical side of things, it's easier to get funding than yeah. with athletes, right? I actually, uh, I was looking to to replicate some of the dragon boat work for my masters, but uh, I can't swim, so I was fairly, uh, I was concerned about my own safety, so I decided to go a different direction for for my master's thesis. But I think uh, you made a good point in in particularly, I'd say, in the last five ten years, the amount of people coming into the field. 
with athletic backgrounds is dramatically changing the shape of how we investigate physical activity in this population. Because like you said, you know, in athletic populations, periodization and, you know, appropriate prescription and modification of exercise is key to performance. And we're now seeing that translation into exercise oncology where we're having a greater focus on what's not just effective, but what's optimal in terms of prescribing exercise and how can we manipulate our training variables to to optimize our outcomes. And I think that's where you kind of talked a little bit about the the idea of chemo-based periodization is fascinating to me and and you've got some really cool work and and you know kelsey bland too coming up in this area uh but before we jump into that let's talk about chemotherapy itself what does that treatment look like and why does that necessitate this kind of chemo-based uh periodization so chemotherapy is a systemic treatment which basically means that it's injected into your vein and it circulates throughout your body. So it's affecting all of your body as opposed to a localized treatment like radiation where the radiation beam is, is directed specifically towards the target area. So it's not affecting the whole body. So the reason that chemotherapy is associated with so many side effects is that it's a non-targeted therapy which means that it doesn't just affect the tumor cells of interest, it affects lots of healthy cells. So basically chemotherapy is targeting any quickly dividing cells in your body. So tumor cells are included in that, uh, but unfortunately also your hair is quickly dividing, which is why individuals lose their hair, as well as some of your skin cells, your nail beds, um, your, your lining of your mouth, and your stomach, which can cause, you know, the nausea and mouth sores associated with it. And um, unfortunately, there's also some targeted uh, effects on different organs of the body as well. Um, And one of my other interests is in the affinity of chemotherapy potentially for the heart. And so that specific side effect is more related to the heart's inherent uh, low levels of antioxidant capacity. And so one of the ways that chemotherapy causes some of these side effects is through something called oxidative stress. And so essentially what that means is that chemotherapy drugs can, through a number of different mechanisms, produce uh, something called a reactive oxygen species. And so that's basically a molecule that wants to steal electrons from other cells. And so the end result, without getting into too much detail, is that the um, reactive oxygen species can damage the cell membranes of other cells. It can damage DNA of other cells and so on um, and can trigger cellular death, essentially. And so that's what potentially is happening with the heart with some certain chemotherapies is that the chemotherapy drugs are triggering cellular death. So we actually see some death with um, anthracyclines in particular as the class of chemotherapy. It's most known to affect the heart cells. Cool. So we'll get into some of the the heart uh, stuff a little later. Um, So obviously the chemo can cause a whole host of side effects both physiologically and psychologically and it seems like these these side effects they fluctuate 
based on when you get your treatment. So you have several different types or cycles of treatment. And within those cycles, you know, you'll get your infusion on a specific day and you'll have a couple of weeks or maybe, you know, or more depending on the, the center and the protocol between um, cycles. So, or between infusion, sorry. And so typically we see the, the acute side effects of treatment being really pronounced in a couple of days directly after an infusion. So your infusion takes anywhere from, you know, four to six to eight hours, depending on the, the protocol. But the, the couple of days after is typically when you feel the worst in terms of nausea, sleep disruption, low energy, fatigue, all that type of stuff. And then that kind of dissipates slowly across the next days and weeks until the next infusion. So this is where the premise of of chemo-based periodization comes in. Um, so first off, before we go anywhere further, let's talk about periodization. What What is periodization? And um, kind of touch it a little bit on, you know, particularly with your work on aerobic exercise, uh, why is there a need for it to be periodized based on chemo? And, and what does that look like? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just start by adding a bit to that uh, eloquent description of the kind of cyclical nature of chemotherapy. So um, mo- most of my work has been in breast cancer chemotherapy, so I'll add that caveat. But yeah, you're right. So chemotherapy is typically given in cycles, and it can be anywhere from typically one week between cycles up to four, most commonly with breast cancer, two to three weeks. And we actually don't see that they feel the worst right after chemo. It's uh, usually in the three to five, three to seven days after treatment. And that's actually because a lot of chemotherapies are given uh, concomitant with a steroid for three days after treatment. So that steroid actually helps people to kind of tolerate the effects of chemo. So they won't necessarily feel, they'll feel off but they may not feel that bad until they, they have stopped taking the steroid three days later. So what we actually see is that peak of symptoms is, like I said, anywhere from the three to seven day range. And then uh, for the rest of the cycle, they'll actually start feeling a bit better, probably not all the way back to where they were before they started taking chemo, and then they're hit again. So we see this kind of cyclical action where it's also commute, uh, cumulative over each chemo cycle. Based on your experience and uh, kind of touching on what I was saying, it's it's clear that the 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 pattern of fatigue, while there is kind of this you know slow you know it gets worse in a few days after and it kind of comes back down, that varies dramatically from individual to individual and protocol to protocol so uh there is that kind of inter-individual variation where when we're talking about this chemotherapy periodized aerobic exercise prescription as you're going to talk about um a lot of it is focused around those patterns of fatigue and patterns of of when you feel better when you feel worse so uh while we're talking about specific days and and we've had different experiences and seeing those differences the overall team remains in that we try to adjust the prescription based on how they feel and and what's going on yeah and so that is the main idea behind the chemotherapy periodization is 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 basically trying to um, adjust the prescription so that it still um, 
we're still going to be able to deliver an exercise dose because we do want them to be exercising throughout that whole, whole cycle, but maybe modifying the, the exercise dose so that a, it's going to be most feasible for the, for the patient. So for example, in that whatever time period after they receive treatment, when they're feeling the worst, we want them to still be able to make it to the gym. Right. And so it's really easy when you're feeling your worst to just say, well, I'll go to the gym next week instead. Um, and on the flip side of things, we, we also want to consider the physiology of what's happening during that time. And so the premise for the kind of period in between different chemo cycles is actually to allow enough time for the individual's immune system to um, kind of recover from the treatment before getting the next treatment. So the active period of receiving the chemo is, you know, it depends on the specific drug and the half-life of the drug and so on. But it's typically only a few days, maybe a week that it's actually in the patient's system and, and circulating. And then the rest of that chemo cycle is to allow the recovery. So with that in mind, I, the chemotherapy periodization was intended to uh, try to think about that physiology and how we can best use the exercise to enhance the treatment effects. Um, and so my kind of idea about it is during that time when they still have the chemotherapy circulating in, in their body, that we don't want to necessarily increase oxidative stress on top of the oxidative stress that's caused by the chemo. But we do want still to improve, uh, keep circulation going and keep individuals working on their muscles, uh, muscle strength to try to prevent some of the apoptosis that might be happening in those muscles as well. And, um, and basically still have the participant come to the gym knowing in advance that th that those workouts in the week after chemotherapy are going to be a little bit reduced in intensity and knowing that they're capable of being able to complete the workout will hopefully kind of entice them to still attend during that week. Yeah, and that's it's huge in terms of our overall goal is just to keep people active during treatment because we know how how much worse uh, people can get if they do, if they don't work out at all. And so in kind of tying in with, with just keeping people active, there's this inverse relationship between intensity of exercise and time so intuitively if i went out and tried to sprint um <laughs> now granted i'm not a college athlete anymore so my sprint it would be a lot shorter but i can maybe only sprint for you know 10 plus seconds before i start to get gas or start to slow down mm -hmm. likewise if i went out for a short walk with with my neighbors um i could walk for a couple of hours so that intuitively as you're thinking about that there is this inf inverse relationship between intensity is time and time and as you're talking, Amy, it kind of uh, comes back to that idea in the days that you feel, you know, nauseous and low in energy and, you know, high in fatigue and all that type of stuff. We want to, you know, it's harder to do that high intensity, you know, think about going out for a few sprints versus going for a walk. We're trying to just get you to to move. So those days where you do you don't feel great, can we just get you out for you know whether it's a ten minute walk or fifteen minute walk or breaking your activity up across the day to where you're still getting in some activity, 
but it's not at that intensity where it's going to be difficult to maintain it's going to be difficult to do and even the thought of doing a higher intensity workout may kind of put you off doing it at all so i really like that idea of 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 modifying that um do you i mean this this area of research is fairly new but do you have any sort of strategies you use to when you're talking to people about this how they can modify their exercise do you use kind of objective measures of of readiness to train do you use perceptual measures how do you kind of go about disseminating that information yeah that's a good question so you know outside of our tightly controlled research studies where we have (laughs) monitors and we have a trainer monitoring every patient and telling them what to do um you know i certainly do get uh individuals who may not be eligible for studies or like friends of friends who have questions about how to just exercise in in the real world on their own. Um, And so a lot of, a lot of my kind of interest in the way I, my philosophy about this has actually come from a good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. David Zucker. And so he is an oncophysiatrist And so that is basically a physiatrist is a rehabilitation specialist doctor. And so in the U.S., they actually have this oncophysiatry specialist, which is basically a cancer rehab doctor. And so uh, David is very unique in that he also has a Ph.D. in psychology. And he's also very interested in exercise physiology and this this field in general. So. One of the things that he feels is really important and he uses in daily practice with his patients is uh, this idea of kind of letting go of thinking about what you should be doing or keeping it consistent across days in that you actually need to listen to what your body is going to allow you to do on a day-to-day basis because of the cyclical nature of chemotherapy. And so he kind of uses a uh, rating of perceived exertion based scale and asks his patients to modify the amount of work they're doing such that from day to day, they're still working at the same relative rating of perceived exertion. So, for example, um, if you're a few days after your chemo and your symptoms are bad, you may be walking at the same in- Uh, rating of perceived exertion but that could be a lower intensity and you could be walking less far you could normally walk 10 blocks from your house but you're only walking eight blocks that day as opposed to later in your cycle uh, the same relative rating of perceived exertion could then be equivalent to that 10 blocks and maybe at a higher pace as well So I think that's really valuable, Um, and I do spend a lot of time talking to my research participants about that too, and especially if you have someone who has been previously active, who's experienced with exercise, and especially if they're the type A personality like you and I, they would have a, a lot of difficulty in letting go of what their body normally allows them to do. Yeah, And so... I really have to explain to those participants that they will get back to that point, especially if they are maintaining some activity during treatments, that 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 version of themselves is still going to be there 
But just for the short period of time while they're going through active treatment, they kind of have to adjust their expectations and that's going to make them feel better psychologically. And, and like you said, um, if they have this expectation of needing to do, you know, an hour run at a high intensity and they're not going to, their body's not going to feel like doing that maybe. So then they might not just, they might just do nothing instead. And so that's what we want to avoid. We really want to have some activity over nothing. And so, you know, when my research participants are going through the worst of their period, their uh, symptoms after a treatment, I always tell them, you know, even if it's you're at home, you're in bed because you're so sick, get up and walk around your house. Like that is a doable thing for anyone. So that's, that's kind of like the smallest building block. So make that your minimal goal. And so a lot of my participants will say that, that they always hear my head in their voice saying, just get up and walk around. And so that's kind of the idea that we want. Like I, I think that consistency throughout treatment is really important. So it's going to be a lot more beneficial to do a little bit of exercise every day rather than taking five days off after every chemo treatment and then training super hard for for the remaining two weeks of the cycle absolutely and it was actually it was really interesting you were talking about the idea of trained people because i've talked about this on a couple of different episodes but as challenging as it is to to modify behavior or get people who are previously inactive to start working out and as frustrating as that can be it can be equally you know if not more in some cases frustrating for people who come in who have been super active and are used to doing you know six seven high intensity workouts a week or you know their ultra endurance or whatever you know if they come from a strong athletic background and they're used to pushing themselves it can be really frustrating for them to come in and, and us and their oncologists say you know take it easy you can't do what you used to do and then you know especially on those days where they may feel good they just don't have it in them whether it's you know, like you said, the cardiotoxicity from treatment or, or other side effects that just prevent them. Um, it's really, it's tough to see athletes battle through it as well. You know, there's kind of different, on different ends of the spectrum, there's different types of frustration with trying to exercise during treatment. Yeah, I totally agree with your statement that it could potentially be even harder for those people because, like I said, those people are often the type A personalities too to begin with, right? The competitive athletes. So, it is, uh, it's, it's a managing of expectations. And I also always like to give those people hope that they can get back to where they were. Right. So keeping that as kind of a carrot throughout the yeah. treatment period in terms of saying like, okay, if you, if you manage what you're doing now, well, then once we're done, we can kind of work towards getting you back, back to that point and feeling good. Yeah, and I really like the, uh, especially now in the in the age of technology, and everyone has gadgets, and and especially in the research world, we want the latest and greatest technology to to help our training. But just the fact that you're using something as simple as RPE to designate training intensity, I, it's just such a nice, easy, simple kind of concept that's that's has so much transference to to the community. So when we talk about RPE. 
we're talking about the rate of perceived exertion. So typically, you know, we measure on a few different scales, but the easiest kind of conceptually is on a scale of, you know, one to 10, 10 being, you know, the hardest you've ever worked to one or zero being you're sitting at home watching Desperate Housewives, just having, you know, a nice relaxing evening. And based on where you're at on a scale is how hard or and how, how intense the workout. So like you were saying, Amy, you know, in, you know, four days after treatment, we could give you an RPE goal of seven for your activity. And you could be so wrecked from treatment that just a 10 minute walk around the block gives you that seven RPE. Whereas, you know, maybe the following week, you're feeling a little bit better, the acute effects of, of that, you know, infusion have kind of worn off. And maybe it's a 20 minute jog around the the block gives you that seven RPE. And so it's a kind of a, a nice way of, of standardizing the intensity and giving that kind of conceptual um, framework to where it's modified based on how you're feeling. And I think it's a really not just a, 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 such a simple way of prescribing exercise that I think once people grasp that, they can intuitively modify their intensity to match how they're feeling. Definitely. I think that's, that's part of David's goal is that he's teaching his patients to listen to their body essentially by teaching them the scale and how to moderate what they're doing based on the scale. Um, I think that is a really important life skill even right for individuals to be able to listen to what's going on in their body. That's also going to help them to, you know, regardless of cancer treatment, uh, maybe identify injuries earlier along the course or other health concerns. Um, I think that's something that people with an athletic background maybe take for granted because that's a necessity when you're training at a high level. But the everyday public may not have had this experience in their past where they've been kind of taught or had the need to listen to their body. So obviously you've worked with a ton of of breast cancer patients, survivors. Um, Can you touch on a little bit in any specific side effects relative to to breast cancer and any kind of common modifications you've you've seen kind of across your experience and you know this is typically what we see this is how we modify exercise based on that sure so i i wouldn't say that we necessarily modify the exercise prescription differently for different side effects um maybe a bit for the resistance training so certainly if there are arm-related issues, um, and we may modify the upper body exercises. So typically in our resistance training interventions, we would not start upper body exercises at all until we get full range of motion in the affected side. And so full is when it's equal to the unaffected side in terms of arm range of motion. And that's just kind of a a goal that we had to ensure that um, we're we're training individuals in a a safe manner. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily a a published guideline. And in terms of modifying the aerobic prescription or just maybe even uh, modifying the resistance prescription overall in terms of saying, okay, we'll do one set of everything today instead of two sets uh 
we did have a prescription modification, a standardized way of doing it for one of our recent studies. And this is under review right now at MSSE. So we wanted to develop a standardized way to kind of say, okay, for, for those bad days when you come in during chemotherapy, you've made it to the gym, but you know, you're feeling really bad that day. Um, we encouraged our participants to come in and talk to the lead exercise trainer about that when it happened. And so we had a preemptive standardized method for adjusting the exercise prescription. And so that was a, we were training using heart rate reserve, which is a difference between the resting heart rate and we were using age predicted peak heart rate. And I should also note that we were adjusting the heart rate reserve based on chemotherapy-related changes in resting heart rate. And so on that day, if their prescription was supposed to be 60 to 65% heart rate reserve, then our standardized method of adjusting it was to just reduce it by 10 percentage points. So the 60 to 65 would be reduced to 50 to 55 we would calculate that individual's target heart rate based on that new range using their whatever their current resting heart rate is. So that includes if their resting heart rate has increased 10, 20 beats from chemotherapy, then that would be incorporated into the prescription. And so we, the way that we assessed this method was to then see once we modified the target um, by, by reducing it by 10 percentage points, how often could people then make that new target? So if they came in and said they're not feeling well, we gave them a new lower target, and then they're able to complete their aerobic workout, so same duration at this lower intensity, then that might be a measure of success in terms of a kind of feasible and standardized way for reducing the exercise prescription. And so what we found was, I think it was about 67, 70% of all of these sessions that were modified in that way were actually achieved at that lower heart rate target. And so anecdotally, we also found with the exercise trainers that that was enough of a bump down that participants felt quite comfortable with that. Um, and we're happy to ha kind of have that modification rather than just saying something like, well, just just see how you're doing today. Just just do what you can. Um, I think a lot of the participants like having that goal in mind. And, you know, we have their heart rate target. We put it on a sticky note. It's on their treadmill. They can see it. They can check their watch, you know, kind of make sure they're they're on target. And so another way that we wanted to kind of see how that uh, prescription method adjustment method worked was to compare the rating of perceived exertion for those exercise sessions. So at the end of each session, we'd ask overall, how did that session feel? And compare that to the in the adjusted sessions to sessions where we just gave them their standard exercise prescription based on what they were supposed to be doing that day. And so we found that the RPE was basically exactly the same between those two sessions. So that kind of tells us that even though they were 10 percentage points less in intensity to them, it kind of felt about the same as on that bad day because of treatment symptoms as, uh, 
maybe a, a less symptom intense day using the normal prescription. I really like that idea of of having that kind of standardized adjustment and we've kind of made a similar call to do that with resistance training because kind of like you touched on if if people don't have that goal of you know you feel better the same or worse here's your adjustment they're likely to select an intensity that's much lower than would actually give them any sort of of benefit or stimulus so it seems like that 10% drop is you know enough to allow them to complete the activity but still high enough to where it actually provides some sort of benefit um and again that kind of it, it makes it standardized across the board it makes it easily translatable in terms of when we're providing these recommendations to professionals or patients or survivors here's here's a, a you know the the kind of standardized drop you can make that will still give you that benefit but also um, allow you to kind of take down the intensity bit to match how you're feeling. Yeah, that's that's a really good point is that it, you know, it, if you didn't give them a goal that their self-selected intensity level might be too low to cause a training effect, like we know there is intensity thresholds. Um, and so I, I, I like that idea as well. So let's move a little bit on because you've got some really interesting work with, with the whole idea of cardiotoxicity and you touched a little bit on the, the start of the podcast but kind of go a little bit more into depth in in how chemo causes this tar- cardiotoxicity and then kind of what are you looking at in terms of exercise and how that can help? Sure. So in the breast cancer population in particular, they are at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease because a number of the multimodal therapies that they're receiving for breast cancer can potentially cause cardiotoxicity. So I briefly discussed anthracycline chemotherapy. So that's a class of chemotherapy agents that includes the drugs called doxorubicin or adromycin, epirubicin, donorubicin, and idorubicin. And so those, that class of chemotherapy is actually used to treat a lot of different cancers in addition to breast cancer, including lung, lymphoma, childhood cancers as well. And uh, it, with breast cancer patients, they, especially with left-sided breast cancer, they may also be getting radiation treatment that is potentially going to affect the heart and lungs as well. So there's risk associated with that. And then um, potentially there's there's some initial work looking at um, hormonal therapy that's less, less well established, whether that um, increases or decreases risk as well. So um, what has been recognized in recent years in the literature is that uh, older breast cancer patients in particular are actually more likely to die from cardiovascular disease than breast cancer. And so part of that, and, and the reason that we're only now recognizing that, because it's been the same treatments causing the same effects for a long time, but because our breast cancer survival rates have increased so much in recent decades, we now have to be concerned about competing risks for this population. So we're more concerned about long-lasting treatment side effects um, because the cancer treatments are doing such a good job in, well, I shouldn't say that, they can always do better, but the, <laughs> relative to past decades, they're doing a better job 
of um, controlling the cancer that the effects the off-target effects, I might call them, of, of chemotherapy, radiation therapy, other treatments, um, is now more of a concern. And so breast cancer patients, about um, one quarter, will also receive a targeted therapy called trituzumab or Herceptin. And so the main uh, off-target side effect from, from trituzumab is also cardi- cardiotoxicity. And so... That drug is actually, it's interesting because it's, so I mentioned how chemotherapy is not targeted, so it basically affects potentially all cells in your body as opposed to targeted therapy like trituzumab in that it is targeted to specifically work on um, a receptor that is expressed in one quarter of breast cancer tumors. So this is called a HER2. And so unfortunately, the same receptor is expressed in the heart. So trituzumab works by blocking this receptor on the breast cancer tumor. So it kind of shuts down the growth of the breast cancer tumor. But also in blocking this receptor um, in the heart, it's also kind of shutting down the survival pathways of the heart muscle cells. So um, with these three main kind of potentially cardiotoxic treatments for breast cancer are quite common. And so this group in particular has an elevated risk. So there's also been studies showing that um, there's a population-based study uh, of all the women in Sweden, I believe it was, and they compared uh, death risks. Uh, among women who've had a breast cancer diagnosis and those who haven't, and women with a breast cancer diagnosis are at greater risk of dying from um, like heart failure and and other cardiovascular disease related uh, death causes. So um, my my interest in this actually came from kind of doing exercise training, exercise testing in this population. And just starting to notice some kind of abnormal cardiovascular responses. And so this was, you know, pretty rudimentary. You're training with a heart rate monitor and, and you know, doing blood pressure assessments and so on. But even within that, like what you expect for your normal responses wasn't always happening in this population. So I began reading about um, cardiotoxicity And during my early PhD, I came across this fairly substantial body of evidence in animal models where they were testing the benefits of aerobic exercise in terms of preventing or treating um, heart heart damage caused by doxorubicin, which is one of the more common types of the anthracycline chemotherapy. And so... To date, I think there's there's probably well over 30 studies that have used aerobic exercise as as what I would call a, a cardioprotective intervention from doxorubicin, and every single one of those studies has had positive results. And so I was really intrigued by that, and there was very little, uh, if not none, no evidence uh, or or even studies looking at whether this happens in humans. 
And so we know exercise is very beneficial for a whole host of other reasons, but there's potential for, um, you, you know, important cancer treatments to cause long-term heart side effects is, is very important. And it's a, it's a valid concern of a lot of patients when they're, you know, have their medical oncology appointment their oncologist tells them all the side effects associated with chemotherapy and sure they'll get nauseous and they'll have fatigue, which again could be long lasting, but the concern of damaging your heart is quite real for a lot of people. And especially if they've been active or, or plan to become active once they've had their cancer diagnosis. And so my PhD was primarily focused on trying to start to translate some of this really um, positive animal research into humans. And so one of the main barriers to that is that the animal studies, and this has all been done in either rats or mice, these studies. So essentially they're picking up the mice that are randomized to the exercise group, putting them on a treadmill and forcing them to run. Some of the studies will do a voluntary wheel running uh, intervention. And so this is very different than real life. When these animals are receiving chemotherapy, they also don't feel well, but they're, you know, in a controlled study. So they exercise and they, their adherence is a hundred percent because they're being controlled by the experimenters. Um, and, and another major barrier is that, in order to study the effects of exercise on the hearts of these rodents, typically it requires euthanasia and they're able to extract the heart from the animal and look at it in, in fine detail, whether it's being pulverized and assessed for biochemical markers or um, there is potentially non-invasive methods for doing it. For, but for the most part, they're looking at biochemical markers actually physically in the heart. And so obviously that's not possible in humans as well. So one of the other main barriers is trying to identify a non-invasive way to kind of measure the effects on the heart that is also sensitive. <clears throat> so the main, um, the main clinical parameter that's used to diagnose cardiotoxicity and in, in oncology care, as well as like virtually every clinical trial is called left ventricular ejection fraction. And so it's basically a measure of the ability of your left ventricle, which is your main chamber in your heart that's pumping the blood to most of your body other than your lungs. And it's a measure of that left ventricle's ability to eject the blood that's in the heart. And so what we see like with heart failure, for example, systolic heart failure is when the heart cannot eject very much blood from it, from the left ventricle. And so the diagnosis criteria in, for cardiotoxicity is when that has decreased below a certain percentage. And so the problem with that parameter is that by the time we actually see a decrease in ejection fraction, so an example might be if it decreases from 60% to 50%, 
the idea is that there may already be irreversible damage caused to the heart by that point. So it's kind of a late marker of what's happening with human heart function. And so one of the challenges is trying to find measures that can tell us that something's happening to the heart earlier without, you know, in maybe in the 70s and 80s, they used to do heart biopsies to look at what was happening. But that's obviously not something we're going to do and and this day and age to our cancer patients. So my PhD thesis was kind of based around those two concepts is trying to look at what is the possible adherence rates to exercise during anthracycline chemo, which, you know, in addition to the potential for the cardiotoxicity, they cause a lot of nausea, um, quite a bit more than the taxing chemotherapies. And, and as well as fatigue and so on. So it's, it's not a fun time. So, you know, we're certainly never going to see 100% adherence in any of our research studies during chemotherapy in humans like they do in the animal studies. Um, the, the other consideration, and we've kind of touched on this a bit, is that a lot of the animal studies have used fairly high-intensity high volume exercise interventions to kind of produce this cardioprotective effect of exercise. And again, this isn't really feasible for a wide range of patients receiving chemotherapy. So for example, a lot of the interventions might be five times a week of an hour running on a treadmill for the animals. And I don't know many people not receiving chemo that would necessarily adhere to that. Yeah. So I kind of looked at like what is a what is a feasible exercise prescription um, that we could have individuals do concurrent to receiving anthracycline chemo. What are the adherence rates, and what are some of the reasons why they're not adhering? And um, and then also identifying a novel echocardiographic parameter. So that's a heart ultrasound measure um, that can potentially tell us what's give us an indication earlier in kind of the course of potential cardiac damage that we can kind of measure the effects of exercise i mean moving forward how do you see that field kind of evolving in terms of um exercise aerobic exercise in particular helping with that cardiotoxicity yeah i think In order to do that, we still really need to identify what the potential exercise dose is that is needed for that, Um, and and a dose that is potentially also feasible. So one of my concerns was, you know, because there is very limited research in humans about this topic, is that maybe we need such a high dose to protect the heart that it's not really going to be feasible in a lot of patients during chemo, but we don't know that yet. So we need, we need work to kind of identify what dose is required. We also need kind of better measures to look at. Like, like I said, um, one of the novel echocardiographic parameters is called longitudinal strain. And so I just finished a paper on that where it doesn't really seem to be necessarily affected by exercise, although it's a sensitive indicator of anthracycline-related cardiac damage. Um, and so there's there's 
still a lot of fundamental questions that need to be answered, I would say, before we start moving into randomized control trials where we're going to see meaningful differences in uh, cardiac function. Um, another important aspect of the field is long-term outcomes. Um, so anthracycline-related cardiotoxicity, for example, can either be a short, a medium, or a long-term side effect. And so we can see it happening up to years later, although recent evidence shows that most cases happen within a year. So that kind of tells me we need studies that are going to be following up for at least that year and kind of looking at more heart outcomes um, in terms of cases of cardiotoxicity and uh, heart failure and potentially like hospitalizations and overall like functionality of these individuals in the long term because that is ultimately our goal and with any of our research is that our inter interventions can have lasting effects in terms of uh, the cancer survivors long-term life after cancer basically like a lot of people will go on to have a normal life expectancy at least with early breast cancer and so we want that life to to be as optimal as possible so I think that, you know, it's challenging and certainly, certainly as grad students, it's, it's very challenging. You can't do long-term studies, but that is, you know, ha has to be our goal, I guess, once we, you and I get our faculty positions, um, to be able to do these kind of long-term follow-up studies and not just following up on clinical outcomes, but on like our physiological variables as well, being able to get our, our past participants to come back in and do these follow-up assessments to see what difference uh, potential intervention just during chemotherapy, which I would argue has the potential for the largest bang for buck in terms of a short intervention um, and, and kind of translating, sh showing what, is really just my hypothesis at that, this point that it is going to have potential long-term benefits in terms of doing a targeted exercise program at a specific time um, in the cancer treatment trajectory. Yeah, that's huge, especially with the, the long-term follow-ups. I mean, we're starting to see some some studies looking at kind of 10 years, and I think there's a there's definitely a few in the works about up, up in Canada and over in Australia, and even as you were talking about the idea of the dose of exercise in treatment, that's a really important point. And because a couple of, I mean, a lot of people are starting to shift that perspective in, we understand exercise as this kind of global exercise is good for you. But now we're starting to, to kind of, as we're thinking about exercise as medicine, just like you would dose medicine differently based on, you know, a variety of factors. You know, the likes of yourself and even Rob Newton over in Australia and Lee Jones up at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we're now starting to say different doses of exercise are likely to have different f effects. And just like you you try to figure out when the best time is to, to give a different dose of treatment, we're starting to look at different doses and timing of exercise to really shift that perspective uh, against kind of global well-being to an actual medicine that you can prescribe to give specific outcomes yeah definitely and, and you know 
in line with that, it, it could be that with different chemotherapy protocols, which are associated with different side effects, you even need a different exercise prescription. So like the example might be because anthracyclines affect the heart and the taxanes, you know, their primary side effect is peripheral neuropathy. Maybe individuals receiving those treatments need to be doing different, not just intensities and volumes, but different types of exercise. Maybe the during taxing, resistance training is more important. And, um, you know, in the Kelsey's study, we're trying to focus on exercises that drive blood flow to the hands and feet for the taxings, for example, because that's where the neuropathy is happening versus, you know, at least in BC, they get anthracyclines first, followed by taxanes. So even individualizing the prescription relative to whatever treatment they're receiving at the time, like that, that, that's the dream, I think, right? Like the, the amount of studies you need to do to figure that out are, are complex and expensive, but. When I talk to general uh, health practitioners or, or, you know, personal trainers or whatever it is, fairly few of them are aware that the field of, of exercise oncology or exercise and cancer care exists. And even within that field, very few of them are aware of how diverse the field itself is you know so talk about getting ultra ultra specific we look to one differentiate between um the type of cancer then the the time you know whether it's before treatment during treatment or after treatment and then the type and the dose of treatment itself and even you know we we look to differentiate between say hormonal therapy and chemotherapy and radiation now we're even looking at even specifically different types of chemotherapy so there are all these different levels, all of which can affect both the side effects you experience and the the exercise that you you might receive. So it's just it, it's fascinating to see the depth and breadth of the field, despite it kind of being, you know, its own subset of the general field of fitness. Yeah, definitely. I think that's you know we we need our, our like keen exercise physiologists who have that you know, scientific curiosity to ask those type of questions. And so I, I look forward to that because there's, it just means there's so much left in the field to do. Um, and part of, part of our goal as researchers to get funding to be able to do those things is to convince those populations who don't really understand the diversity and the nuances of those different research questions, right? Because that was a good point that, clinicians wouldn't really uh, have a sense for the diversity and, and, and how exercise can really be used as a medicine and dose differently and so on. So I think that's, you know, that's on you, you and I to be able to describe that to those audiences who are going to be reviewing our operating grant applications to kind of convince them that this is really important and that we can really improve how we deliver exercise and the outcomes that we're getting from it. And so I think there's so much room in the field for that to kind of improve how precisely we're delivering exercise interventions and how we're targeting them for specific, whether it's cancer-related like clinical outcomes or side effects, um, there's so much left to to discover in those respects if 
you have advice to any cancer patients or survivors um, looking to get started, what would that kind of advice look like? We, we've been talking mostly about chemotherapy, which is my primary research interest. So I do believe that there is value in doing supervised exercise, specifically during chemotherapy. Um, and so you did kind of allude to some of my work with like fee-based models and so on. And, you know, I do feel like if whether you're in a large city where you can have access to potentially like research programs that are offering exercise program programming, like we've been talking about, or whether it's, um, I don't, I actually don't know if this exists, but if you can get like online kind of training, like, you know, online coaching kind of programs, I don't yeah. know if there's, there's like cancer exercise trainers that are offering things like that. There is one talking to you right now, shameless plug for Reach Beyond Cancer. You can contact me, email me. I offer online consulting. Carry on. <laughs> I didn't even plan that. Um, and so I think that I think that's so important is it's even if you're an individual who is experienced with exercise, you're not experienced with cancer treatment, right? And so having an expert who kind of knows about the nuances of the treatment and even just like a one-time consult and say like generally these are the things you need to be aware of this is how you can modify things this is you know our kind of pep talk we had earlier about saying listen you're not going to be within your normal capabilities but um, keep in mind that that will happen again in the future and this is how you can kind of modify things so um, barring barring all of that though I would also just say if none of that is possible for you just think about minimal amounts of movement and whether that is just getting up walking around your dining room when you're having your worst day where you're mostly in bed um that's a great goal or if it's you know a few days later you feel a bit better then just do just make a goal of walking one block around your house. That's a great goal. Like any movement, especially during chemotherapy, is going to be better than nothing. And despite how you're feeling, it will make you feel better afterwards. We find that in all our supervised studies, if our participants can actually get themselves to the gym, I would say 99% of the time they feel better when they're leaving the gym. So just try to keep that in perspective, I would say like you said it's a it's a long road and it's a it's a tough one for many but the more you move more than likely the better it's going to be um so listen amy i can't thank you enough for for giving us the guts of an hour the um you know incredibly insightful conversation particularly with the the cardio toxicity that i'm sure a lot of people will benefit from and we'll definitely have you on for part two but um where can people find out what you're up to what you got going on and, and all your research Sure. So I have a website. It's amykirkham.ca for Canada. And my Twitter handle is amyakirkham. And then I have Instagram as well, but that's mostly just dogs and, and hiking. <laughs> hiking. But if you're interested in those things, uh, I think I have the same Instagram. I think I'm amyakirkham there as well cool so i'll throw all them in the show notes as well and uh listen amy i really appreciate it and thanks a lot again 
Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was great to chat with you.